You're listening to audio from Kingsway Christian Church. If you'd like to check out more resources or donate to this ministry, please visit kingswaychurch.org. Good morning, everybody. Uh, It's great to be here with you. In case you didn't notice, Rhett is not here today. His wife just gave birth. He's now a father again for the third time. Yeah. And... uh, They finally have a little girl to break up the craziness in the home and add some drama, so good for them. And uh, I let let Molly know and Rhett know that um, they are are officially not going to sleep for the next 30 years and uh, maybe beyond that, we'll see. So hey, I just wanna say happy Father's Day to all of you who are dads out there. I'm a dad myself and um, I realize Father's Day for some of you is hard or painful. So many fathers have left the family or whatever it may be. And so I just want to say to all of you who are great fathers or good fathers and have good fathers, happy Father's Day. Let's just say thanks to all our fathers. Thank you. Yeah. So we're going through a series called The Summer Mixtape, and we're just taking these different themes of music today, and we're looking at them kind of through the lens of the Psalms. And uh, today we get to blues. Now, I don't know about you, but I didn't know a lot about blues. Had to do a lot of listening and research this week. And uh, my first experience ever with the blues, my parents came to me. They either got cheap or free tickets to a concert. And in the concert were two guys. One was named Bo Diddley, and the other one was named Chuck Berry. Yeah. So some of you are like, who? Exactly. That's how I felt at 15 or whatever years old I was. And then, so here, let me just help you out a little. Here's Bo Diddley. At least this is an older Bo Diddley. This is when he looked like when he was younger. So when I saw Bo Diddley, I went, I know him from the Bo Nose commercials. Does anybody like, like over 30 remember these? Like Bo Jackson and Bo Diddley did these Bo Nose commercials for Nike together. Google it. All right, anyway. And uh, then, it's a, th- th- this is Chuck Berry, here you go. Um, you missed it, Vault Services. All right, go back a picture. I know, they're not the same. This was supposed to be my bad joke. And in both services, the slide people skipped it, thought I went, wanted the real picture of Chuck Berry. Anybody know what that is? Back to the Future. And Chuck Berry's there and he learns the song, Johnny Be Good. Forget it, my jokes are so bad anyway. I don't know which is funnier, the joke or the making fun of the joke. So anyway, another bad 80s reference for you. Here's the real Chuck Berry, blah, blah, blah. We'll get it right next service, all right? Here's the real Chuck Berry. That probably doesn't help you. He's a much older Chuck Berry. Uh, Chuck Berry was by far the more engaging of the two. But after hearing these two men, I sat there to myself and thought, this isn't my style of music. Like my parents knew all the songs and they were taking like requests. My dad's like yelling out songs he wanted to sing. And I was content to never learn them after I left. However, since I had to learn blues music this week, uh, I decided to go pursue it and find out both these men did some blues music. It's not everything they did. And um, what I learned in my studies this week about blues music is this. If you play blues music backwards, you get your woman back, she treats you good, (coughs) you don't feel lonely anymore, and you actually want to get out of bed and be an adult today. It's amazing. What happens if you play blues music? Some of you are blues music lovers and you are so offended. Just give me lots of grace, all right? My jokes aren't much better than my sermons. So here's an example of what I'm talking about. This comes from B.B. King. You guys have heard of B.B. King, right? B.B. King wrote this song, um, How Blue Can You Get? And here's some words from that song. I gave you a brand new Ford. You said I want a Cadillac. I bought you a $10 dinner. You said thanks for the snack. I let you live in my penthouse. You said it was just a shack. I gave you seven children, Rhett, and now you want to give them back. How's that for a line? 
Yes, I've been downhearted, baby, but ever since the day we met, I said our love is nothing but the blues. Baby, how blue can you get? That is the blues in a nutshell. Now, how many of you have heard that joke I just made about the blues related to country music? Right? Play country music backwards. There's a reason. Blues music and country music came from basically the same place. They both came from the South. The difference is blues music originally really had more roots in the African-American community, and the country music had its roots more in the white Caucasian community. And so they were writing on similar themes, except for early blues music had to do a lot with white um, racism towards blacks and had a lot to do with that. But as it developed over time, it had to do with relationships and things going bad and dogs dying and blah, 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 sadness in general. And so... Consequently, you can make the same joke about country music as blues. The only difference is you have to add in a truck or a tractor somewhere. So as long as that's in there, <laughs> your money, you're good to go. Here's a country version of a blues song by a guy named Lonnie Mack. Lonnie says this, chocolate on my fingers, icing on my lips, sugar diabetes and blubber on my hips. I keep the nightlight burning in the kitchen, baby, so I can go downstairs and cruise. I got them Oreo cream sandwich, chocolate-covered, cream-filled cookie blues. Anybody actually know that song? Yeah, I didn't either. Okay. Well, nowadays, blues, actually, if you study it, it kind of refers to many things. There's a specific chord progression and, and, and uh, range that they use, and I won't go into all that, partly because I don't understand it, even though I read about it, and partly because no one cares in the room that doesn't love blues. But what blues today have come to be known as is basically this general sense of agitation or depression. And so we turn on the blues. In fact, you kind of say, I'm feeling what? Blue, it, it, this, this color reference has kind of become synonymous with where I am in my life. And by the way, there are plenty, plenty of Psalms like that. I don't know if it's the majority, I don't know how I didn't count them, but there are a lot, a lot of Psalms like that. In the Bible world, we actually have a phrase for this, we call them Psalms of Lament. Psalms of Lament. In fact, we have a whole book called Lamentations, and Lamentations is Jeremiah the prophet lamenting over Israel, not responding to him warning them that God was going to discipline them if they didn't repent, so they kept going, so God disciplined them, and he's basically sitting there looking over the destruction of the city and his people, and they're suffering, and he's crying and writing these words. They're, some are almost poetic, and some are just kind of a book, but in the Psalms, there are tons and tons and tons of them. Most psalms of lament have a similar kind of flow or outline. They have a certain amount of points that they all make together. For instance, uh, they almost always have an expression of what the problem is. So, I'm surrounded by my enemy. I'm about to be killed. I am sick. I need you. I am hurting. Relieve my pain. I'm uh, suffering in some form or fashion. And so we have this kind of expression of that. Then we get the grief. Like, because of this, Oh, Lord, I am feeling this way. These things have happened, and they're just describing for you what's going on in their life, just like a blues song would. They have a proclamation, usually, about God's character, specifically as it relates to their problem. So uh, if they're surrounded by an enemy, 
They might call on God to be uh, the the chief or the captain of heaven's armies. They might call on God to be a, a strong fortress that they can run into and be saved or protected from the evil that's happening around them. If they are sick, they might call on God's uh, provisional hand of manna for the Israelites in the, in the desert or call on God the healer or whatever it is. So they specifically take a part of God's character and who he is and then they apply it to their situation as they're crying out. And there's usually some expression of trust. So many of the Psalms of Lament kind of work their way through this process to where somewhere either in the middle, so in in Hebrew poetry, one of the most common forms of poetry is what we call a chiasm, where the opposite ends compare to each other and they build to the middle. And right there at the very center of the poem is the climactic moment of everything. So you get trouble, strife, pain, climactic moment, but God, you're good. I'm calling on your character. I trust you. And then it works backwards out to a resolution at the end of the psalm. We're started with trouble and pain. We're now ending with triumph and glory. And that's kind of how most of them go. There's an expression of, I trust you, God. You're going to heal me, restore me, redeem me, help make me new. But every once in a while, we get these psalms that don't have resolution. We get these psalms that are just agitated and depressed, and it doesn't seem to be going anywhere. Anybody ever had a season of life like that? I've been there. And in those seasons, fear will take over. So God, are you really going to change this? Are you really going to fix this? Take a look. Here's just one example. Psalm 88. Psalm 88. We're not going to look at the whole thing. You can read the whole thing later if you want to. It says this, verse 1. O Lord, God of my salvation, I cry out to you by day. I come to you at night. Now, hear my prayer. Listen to my cry. For my life is full of troubles and death draws near. I am as good as dead. I like like a strong man with no strength left. They have left me among the dead and I lie like a corpse in a grave. I am forgotten, cut off from your care. Verse eight and nine. You have driven my friends away by making me repulsive to them. I am in a trap with no way of escape. My eyes are blinded by my tears. Each day I beg for your help, O Lord. I lift my hands to you for mercy. And he goes on and on and on for verse after verse after verse. And this, unlike other Hebrew poetry, it has no resolution. It never gets to the point where we see the joy, the glory, the therefore I trust you, God, you're going to change it. My whole attitude has changed. My perspective has changed. It's it's like, this is it. I don't know what you're going to do. He's just in a really, really, really bad place. Now, you ever done that thing where like, you're like, God, I just need a word from you today. I'm just going to open my Bible and read the first thing that jumps out at me. You do not want to land on Psalm 88. If you weren't suicidal before you did it, you will be after. Now, first of all, I do not, just hear me. I do not recommend that as the way you hear from God. I've done it before, and I will tell you two-thirds of the time it does nothing, and a third of the time it's worked. And I don't know why. Sometimes it has, and most of the time it doesn't. The point of God's word is to drink it in and eat it on a regular basis so that when life happens, the spirit just leads you back to something he has already, you've already consumed, something you've already fed on, and you know exactly where to go to get what you need. The goal isn't just to randomly shoot and, and hope it works. But if you did end up in Psalm 88, it'd be a bad day. You'd be like, I can relate with that dude. 
but it never gets anywhere. So what's going on in his life? We don't know. I love that about the Bible, by the way. It's real. It's raw. It's, it's kind of harsh, but it doesn't hide the fact that life is sometimes like that. We know this much. His name is Heman, kind of spelled He-Man, which I love that too, another 80s reference. Heman the Ezraite wrote the Psalm 88. We know according to 1 Kings 4.31, if you look up Heman the Ezraite, he's listed there, and we're told that he's gifted and wise. Okay, well, that tells us something right there. So here's a man who is listed in the Bible, so he's important. He was wise and gifted, so apparently his wisdom was used for the benefit of others. We're also told in first, uh, where is it? First Chronicles 15, 16 through 19, that he actually was a Levite who was musically talented and served during David's reign as king. Okay, we'll put all these pieces together. In case you don't know, the Levite is the clan of the Old Testament. They come from the tribe of Levi. That's why they're called the Levites. And they were basically the priestly tribe. They were the tribe that served in the temple on behalf of God. They were also, most commonly, kind of the musical tribe. And so he's musically talented. He serves in the temple on God's behalf. He lives during David's reign, and he's a wise man. That's how much we know about him. That's it. But something bad happened in his life. Now, see, in America, and especially American Christianity, we tend to correlate my faithfulness to God, to God's blessing over me. So if I'm good and I do gooder things, then God owes me one. But here, Heman the Ezraite, he's a good man, he serves in God's kingdom, he's listed twice in the scriptures, but apparently something bad is happening. In those moments of our life, they have the ability to shake our faith to its core, do they not? We don't know if he's sick. We don't know if he's dying. We don't know if he's being surrounded. The fact that he lived during David's kingdom, David's reign, tells me a few things. It's not Solomon's reign, probably the greatest season that Israel ever had, but in David's reign, there wasn't like these massive wars where Israel was losing. They were going to battle a lot, but they were always winning and taking new ground. There was a civil war at one point between David and his own house. I suppose it could have been in that season, but it, we don't know. Which means when you read Psalm 88, if you're in a hard season and you read these words and they connect with how you feel, then you can apply them because you don't have to go, well, it's not because my family's at war or whatever. It's because what I'm going through just connects with these words. Music has a powerful way of doing that, doesn't it? But what do we do with the fact that Haman the Ezraite never gets a resolution to his problem? So I just want to clarify real quick, because we're kind of dancing in both of these camps. There are basically two kinds of psalms of lament, one where we get a resolution of hope and one where we don't. The one where we don't is more rare than the ones where we do, but it does happen, and it doesn't just happen in the Old Testament. It actually happens in the New Testament, too. So in the New Testament, for those of you who don't know, I'll try to give as much background and bring you along in the story. There's a character whose name is John the Baptist. Some call him John the Baptizer. Now, he was related to Jesus here on earth because John the Baptist's mama was related to Mary, Jesus' mama. Now, John the Baptist was the precursor. He was what we would call the last prophet of the Old Covenant. Now, he's a New Testament prophet, 
but he is the last prophet of the old covenant because he came before the death, burial, resurrection of Jesus, which brought us the new covenant. Jesus says he's the greatest prophet there ever was. In fact, I believe he says that in Matthew 7, sorry, Luke 7 and Matthew 11. And that's important because it's in these chapters where John the Baptist is in jail. Now remember, John the Baptist, same dude, standing in the water, baptizing people and telling them to repent, repent, the kingdom of heaven is near. Then Jesus shows up on the scene and John looks at him and he says, there he is, the lamb of God who will take away the sins of the world. And then the same guy who looks at him and says, I must decrease, he must increase. I'm not even fit to untie his sandals. This same John the Baptist finds himself in prison. And he's a little worried about where this is going. And so he takes two of his disciples and he sends them to Jesus. And here's, take a look at this. Matthew chapter 11, verse three. Here's what he tells them to ask. <clears throat> Are you the Messiah we've been expecting or should we keep looking for someone else? Now you may read that and think, well, that seems like an innocent question. Doesn't everybody in here at some point wanna know the answer to that? But look deeper for a minute now. John the Baptist is the precursor. He's the one who told everybody Jesus is coming. He's the one who baptized Jesus. He was there when the Holy Spirit descended. He heard the, the Father in heaven say, this is my son in whom I'm well pleased. If anybody should have confidence in Jesus, it would be John the Baptist. But John is in a hard season. And hard seasons make us ask hard questions. And so he's sending his disciples and understand what he's asking. Are you the Messiah? Now, I don't know of anybody in Jesus' day who had a different opinion. There may have been some. I'll venture, I guess, to say virtually everybody or everybody in Jesus' day waiting for the Messiah was looking for an earthly king. See, they were under Roman rule. What Rome would do basically is go into a town. It's kind of like not much different than Alexander the Great with the Greeks. They'd go into a town and you had two choices, surrender or be destroyed and forced to surrender. Those were pretty much your two options. And if you surrendered, you would have to adopt Roman culture, including Roman religion, the pantheon of gods, including worshiping Caesar as God in Jesus' day. But they had a special relationship with the Jews, the Romans did. They, would, um, they allowed the Jews, for whatever the reason being, they had this thing worked out. They kind of had their own king, ruler. His name was Herod. He was in some ways a, a puppet king. He was a king with limited power because he was still under the authority of Rome. And inside that, they were allowed to worship their God and not have to take on all of the religion and culture of Rome as long as they didn't cause any problems, which creates many problems later when they did create problems and there was all those issues going on. This is probably why Pontius Pilate agrees to have Jesus crucified because he just wants there to not be problems in his town because he doesn't want things to blow up. So otherwise the Roman government's gonna come in and make his life miserable. So you just kind of follow back now. John the Baptist is in prison and he's waiting for the Messiah that he announced to take over. Like, are you him? I'm confused. I know my job from God was to pronounce that you are coming and what you're going to do is be far greater. I thought you were the Messiah, but you've been out there doing your thing for a while now, Jesus, and I don't see a kingdom and I'm in prison. And is this going anywhere? Or am I just gonna be stuck? Let's take a look at Jesus' response. 
Matthew chapter 11, verse 4. Jesus told them. Now, before I read you what Jesus told them, realize when the disciples walk up, Jesus is healing. He's doing that thing he does, casting out demons, making the blind see, the deaf hear, the lame walk. And Jesus says, go back to John and tell him what you have heard and seen. In other words, you saw it with your own eyes. You heard it with your own ears, my teachings and what I'm doing. The blind see, the lame walk. Those with leprosy are cured. The deaf hear, the dead are raised to life, and the good news is being preached to the poor. So in a nutshell, in a nutshell, Jesus just said these three things to John. Number one, yes, John, I am the Messiah. I'm him. I'm the king. Number two, I'm setting up my kingdom. I'll prove it to you. The blind see, the deaf hear, the lame walk. Now, let's pause on that because it's important for part three. You may not know why that sets up God's kingdom. Since everybody was waiting for an earthly king who would basically destroy the oppression of the Romans, overthrow Herod, take over, set up a Davidic or David-like kingdom. Remember this, in the Old Testament, I believe it's 2 Samuel 7 or 2 Samuel 9, I believe it is, maybe 7, 9. God told David, there will be a king who's gonna come from your lineage and when he does, his kingdom will reign forever. His rule will never end. Well, everybody's been waiting for a physical king since that day. They did not understand because Jesus had not died and rose from the dead. He is a physical king, but he's reigning in a spiritual world that lives inside physical people, us who love him. So God is in heaven. Jesus is in heaven next to God. He literally is seated on the throne earth is his footstool. He's not stressed out. He's running things from up there, but he wasn't coming down here to overthrow Rome. He was coming down here to overthrow Satan, sin, and death. And so Jesus is saying to John the Baptist, I'm doing this. And he literally is saying, I'm doing this just like the father said I would. Don't miss this. If this isn't clear, I apologize. I'm struggling perhaps with words. If you go read Isaiah 35 and Isaiah 61, if you're just bored later, read those. Isaiah is writing to the Israelites who are in captivity and they're struggling. And Isaiah's encouragement to them is one day the Messiah will come and you'll know he came because the deaf will hear, the blind will see, the lame will walk. I believe specifically, look at Isaiah 35 verses 1 through 5 and Isaiah 61 verses 1 and 2. You're going to see those things referenced. So Jesus is going all the way back to Isaiah to let John know, I'm him. I'm doing exactly what the Old Testament said I would do, and this is my kingdom. I am establishing my authority, my power, my rule through my hands and the work that I'm doing. <clears throat> but if you go back and read Isaiah 35, verses 3 through 5, and Isaiah 61, verses 1 and 2, there's one thing that Jesus left out in his comments to John's disciples. Go read it later. Jesus leaves out this phrase in both, I believe it's in both those chapters, at least one of them, that the captives will be set free. And you may be thinking, well, I don't, isn't that an important part of Jesus' ministry? Yes, but Jesus is likely leaving an important message for John the Baptist. What is that message? Jesus is telling John, you ain't getting out of here, bud. Did you catch that? John, you're a good man. You faithfully served God. You did what he's asked you to do and it's landed you in prison. And now you're, you're asking me to get you out. 
And I just gotta tell you, God's kingdom is flourishing. It is growing like gangbusters. Your work was not wasted. You did not waste your time, your energy, your efforts. You are succeeding. However, John, you're not getting out of there. Go back and tell him. Much different than our culture today, most Hebrew boys, at least from what I've read, had the Old Testament memorized by the time they were roughly 13 years old. I can't imagine the journey back for John's disciples. They would have understood clearly what Jesus was saying, even though it was in code. What would it be like to deliver that message to a close friend? Jesus goes even further, though. Take a look at the very next verse, verse 6. And he added, God blesses those who do not fall away because of me. You ever read that verse and been like, what in the world is Jesus talking about? Why can't Jesus be clear? This is extremely clear. So John's disciples go to deliver the message, and Jesus looks at the crowds who have just heard this whole thing, and they're trying to put together who Jesus is too. And Jesus looks at them, and he says, so when God doesn't do what you expect him to do, God blesses those who trust him anyway. Okay, so just a reality check here. God won't always do what you want him to do. When you want him to do it or how you want him to do it. And when that season comes, you will be tempted to turn to someone else or something else for hope. And the message from Jesus is simply, God will bless you if you don't turn away because you don't get the response that you were looking for. Again, put all this together. Jesus is essentially saying, my kingdom doesn't look like you want it to look. My kingdom isn't doing necessarily what you want it to do. And John, your situation isn't gonna change, but God's gonna bless you for trusting me. Do you know how John the Baptist story ends? It's only a few days. He gets beheaded, chopped off. That's the end of his story here on earth. Hang on to that. We'll get back to that. One of my favorite authors... um, A guy named Mark Buchanan, I recommend you buy everything he's written and just read it, go to Amazon. Mark Buchanan's a pastor in Canada. He writes really, really well. And he says this, when he went through a really, really, really hard season, he says this, then God gave me insight. This was winter. It would end in time, but not by my own doing. My responsibility was simply to know the season and to match my actions and inactions to it. It was to learn the slow, hard discipline of waiting. It was my season to believe in spite of, to believe in the absence of evidence or emotion. When there's nothing, no bud, no color, no light, no bird song to validate my belief. It was my time to walk without sight. This is the book that I got that out of. It's called Spiritual Rhythm. Being with Jesus in every season of your soul. Highly recommend the book. That's why I'm showing it to you. If you want to go look at it, pull it out on your phone right now. Basically, he breaks life down into four major seasons. Winter, 
spring, summer, and fall. And he takes them in that order. And the reason he does it is he says, essentially, if we don't recognize the season we're in, then we try to live like we're in a different season, only prolonging the season and the pain of the season. When you're in winter, you can't act like it's summer. And when you're in summer, you can't act like it's winter. And there are these opposites, spring and fall and summer and winter, but you have to recognize where you are. You don't get from winter to summer, though, by skipping spring. And there's a transition period in there, isn't there? I mean, <clears throat> you can think winter's done in February like this year because it was a mild winter, and then all of a sudden it snows in April and everything's dying again. You're like, what just happened? There's a transition from one opposite to the other. And summer's full of joy and laughter and fun and partying. It's the time of vacations. It's wonderful. Mark makes an excellent point that in every season there's a work to do, and in every season there's a play to do. A play, like a fun thing to do. You can't ski in the summer. It's not easy to hike in the winter. There are certain things you could do in certain seasons as long as you understand the season that you're in. So, when life is in winter, what is the work to be done? Well, there's God's work and our work. God's work is this, pruning. Pruning. So, a few years ago, I have these, I still have them, but... um, we had these burning bushes and uh, they were getting to the point where they were overgrown and I had the like path that goes between them to go from my kind of my front garage back to the side to the backyard and they'd overgrown and I couldn't get through without scraping my arms and cutting my face and that kind of thing. So I decided I was going to prune it, but it was like late July or August and I wounded that thing forever. <laughs> like it took roughly 18 months to two years before that bush recovered. And the worst part was the other bushes around it were fine. It was only the one that I pruned back so I could get through, and it looked terrible. And my wife was like, what did you do? I'm like, I don't know. I don't have any green thumbs. Like, I'm terrible at gardening. Like, we should just pull it all up and plant grass. But I'd kill that, so it wouldn't help. Like, put in rocks. I don't know, something. You have to prune in the right season. And realize this, if you are in a painful season, a season of agitation or depression, God is probably trying to change something in you. Jesus says in John chapter 15, verses one and two, I am the true grapevine and my father is the gardener. So get the analogy. Jesus is a grapevine and he's gonna use all kinds of stuff. We're gonna look at about branches being on and attached to the vine. But God is the gardener. It's God's job to care for the vines. But notice what Jesus says next. He cuts off every branch of mine that doesn't produce fruit. And he prunes the branches that do bear fruit, so they will do what? Produce even more. Okay, so question. What happens if you never take the roses off the rose bush? They'll eventually wilt and die and fall to the ground. But if you do take the roses off the rose bush, what happens next? It produces what? More. And in the winter, early winter or late winter, if you cut that bush back, what's gonna happen the next year? It grows bigger. It's crazy, right? It doesn't make sense. Remember the first time I pruned a rose bush, besides getting blood everywhere, I remember thinking to myself, this is, I'm killing this thing. But all the experts tell me this is what I should do. And then it just grows and blooms. It becomes beautiful, which is kind of the analogy that Jesus is trying to get to here. I don't want to overwhelm you with books, but there's a phenomenal book called Necessary Endings by a guy named Henry Cloud, Dr. Henry Cloud. In, in essence, it's a business book, even though he's a Christian author, but he's basically saying everything has a beginning and everything has an end, everything. 
And so it's important for us to see the endings before they come and are forced upon us, and we prune these things. And then basically he says there are three things, three things that we prune, and here's the three things. Number one, the dying, number two, the sick, and number three, the good. So just, just to give you, I'm gonna, I'm gonna go really quick, but here's the danger, okay? So as I just go kind of quickly on some of these things, I may touch on one, and if you misapply what I'm trying to say, it's gonna hurt you bad, and you're gonna think I'm a mean person. I'm just asking for grace up front because I'm going quickly, and number two, just asking for the Spirit to speak into your life. Just listen to what he says, okay? Ignore me, I'm a moron. All right, so the dying. The dying could be a lot of different things. For those of you who love gardening, what happens when there's a dying branch attached to something, a plant, a tree, or whatever it is, what happens? It'll kill the rest of the bush, the tree, whatever it is. You know why? Because your tree, your plant, or whatever, will spend all of its energy trying to save something that's dead. How can this play out in life? Well, look, in the garden, as best as I can tell, in the garden, there wasn't supposed to be death. We live after the garden. We live in a fallen world where sin is now a part of this life. And because of that, death is a part of this life. But here's the good thing. For those of us who are dying, like literally physically dying, and there are some of you, you have loved ones, it's Father's Day, you may have a father who passed. The thing about dying is it's the birth of a new thing if you're a believer. It's literally the birth of life where there is no more pain, there is no more suffering, there's no more sickness, there's no more dying. It's the glorious thing, the best thing. My boys can't quite get this. We talk about this in our home, and my boys say, I don't want to die. I haven't driven a car yet, and I haven't gotten married. And now they don't want to get married. They just want to all move in a house together and, and be the dude perfect guys for the rest of their life or whatever. I don't know. And um, dying is a good thing. And sometimes relationships need to die. Don't misunderstand me. If your marriage is in a hard place, I'm not saying that God's will is for your relationship to die. Once you've committed to each other, Jesus said, let man not separate what God has brought together. So that's not the reference point here for you. But let's say you're not married and you're dating someone and it's clear the relationship is dying and you're dying trying to save this person. And you can't. But you can embrace the season you're in and say, God, I don't know if you're gonna rescue this, restore this, redeem this, or heal this, but I trust you. I'm not gonna fall away because of you. The sick. What could the sick look like in our lives? Well, one really easy example would be sin. You know, when a sin is rampant in your life, you are sick eternally. And what happens if there's a disease on a plant or on a bush? It spreads to the rest of the plant. Will eventually lead to dying if it's not, if it doesn't get help. Well, if you have a sin in your life or a unhealthy habit or a dysfunctional part of your personality and you see it and everyone else sees it and you ignore it, you know what happens? It spreads to your family, to your friends, to your workplace. And next thing you know, like everybody else is getting sick from your sickness. And so what do you need to do? Cut it out, prune it, change it. Something has to be different. But then the last one, and this is perhaps the hardest one, the good. I mean, Jesus even says, God prunes the good. What does that mean? It means that God has to remove even good things in you so that better things could come. God has to change you, shape you, move you. Just one example from my life, and I realize it's one example, so it may not apply to you, but I remember I was at my last church, and it was going like gangbusters. 
We had just launched an $18.5 million second campus. I was the campus pastor of this other campus. I was uh, enjoying my job, loving the people. We had roughly 1,000 people showing up. We had zero and then 1,000. We went from zero to 1,000. It's a phenomenal way to do church planning. I loved my job, and then God called me here. And it was good there, but it was great here because this is what God wanted to do in me next. And that church went through a hard season. They had to do some pruning of some good things and some sick things and some dying things. After I left, they went through a hard season, but now things are going really, really good there again. And this is kind of how God works in our lives. Winter is the season of pruning. So instead of falling away and getting discouraged and quitting and giving up, realizing that you are here for God's purpose, to do something in you, this is why, by the way, and I, gosh, I'm just adding this in so I don't have time to add in. Look, this is why we don't commit suicide in the winter. I know suicide is like all the rage in our culture, and especially teenagers have these fantasies about, I know what I'll do, I'll kill myself, and then I'll watch everybody come to my funeral and mourn. Or you could just go to the people that you know love you and say, I'm really hurting right now. And if those people are the ones that are causing the hurt, then go to a different group. But I promise you, even if your parents you think are mad at you and whatever, they love you. Even if it's broken and you all need help, they love you. It may be sick, it may be dying, it may need help, but they love you. The reason we don't quit, we don't ever quit, is because God's not finished with us yet. How do I know? You're here. You're alive. He's got a work for you to do, even if you don't get out of prison. Are you with me? Henry Cloud says this, without the ability to end things, people stay stuck, never becoming who they are meant to be, never accomplishing all their talents and abilities should afford them. Getting to the next level always requires ending something, leaving it behind, and moving on. Growth itself demands that we move on. Man, this is a hard message, isn't it? Because some of you are singing the blues right now. Well, I want to encourage you with this. God's work in our hard seasons is pruning, but our work in hard seasons and winter seasons is this. Prayer and patience. Prayer and patience. I remember hearing Matt Chandler, the, the senior pastor, lead pastor down at the Village Church of Texas, a great church. He's a great pastor, done a lot of good things. He, went, he, found, he got a diagnosis of a brain cancer. There's a tumor in his brain. This is, I believe, about a decade ago now. And um, they were gonna have to do emergency surgery and change things, and I, I, he was looking at potential imminent death. Here he was, a young man with kids and a church that was growing and just out of nowhere. But I remember him talking about that season, and he said, you know, in that season, I did more praying and more confessing of my sin than ever because I didn't know. It was like, at any moment, I'm going to meet God. I wanna be ready. See, winter has a blessing for you. You will cry out to God like you've never cried out to him before. And you will have to wait upon the Lord. And let me leave you with this encouragement. As you wait upon the Lord, realize, even if your situation doesn't change, like John the Baptist, let's say this is your story all the way to the end. You need to know something. It's not the end of the story. 
It's just your story to the end, which is really the beginning. And I know that may seem confusing if you're new to this thing, but stick with me. Remember earlier I joked about playing country music backwards and blues music backwards, and what do you get? You get your wife back, you get your job back, you get your car back, you get your dog back, you get your tracker back, all those things. Well, in the Bible, we as Christians are told to live with the end in mind and to live life backwards. We're literally told we're foreigners in a foreign land. We are just passing through this world, not our home. Therefore, what do we do? We fix our eyes on Christ, the author, the one who is the beginning, and the perfecter of our faith. So we see Jesus in heaven. We see the pain and the hardships that he endured, and he scorned its shame going through the cross. And we keep our eyes on heaven, and we realize that everything that we might deal with here, while hard and painful, some God's going to change. Some God's going to resolve. Some God is going to heal. Some of it we're going to carry with us to our grave. But make no mistake, take a deep breath, because on the other side of the last breath is unbelievable joy as God redeems and restores and wipes every tear from your eyes. This is not the end of your story, even if it's your story until the end. Now, let me take you back. Remember Psalm 61, Jesus quoted it to John the Baptist? Verses one and two, some of the prophetic texts. Take a look with me at verses three through seven and realize Isaiah is talking to a people who are in terrible pain, suffering, and captivity. And this is just a glimpse of heaven, of heaven. This is a heavenly text where he's pointing to the restoration of all things. And he says this, verse three. To all who mourn in Israel, he will give a crown of beauty for ashes, a joyous blessing instead of mourning, festive praise instead of despair. In their righteousness, they will be like great oaks that the Lord has planted for his own glory. They will rebuild the ancient ruins, repairing cities destroyed long ago. They will revive them, though they have been deserted for many generations. Foreigners will be your servants. Remember, foreigners destroyed them. They will feed your flocks, plow your fields, tend your vineyards. You will be called priests of the Lord, ministers of our God. You will feed on the treasures of the nations and boast in their riches. Instead of shame and dishonor, you will enjoy a double share of honor. You will possess a double portion of prosperity in your land. An everlasting, an everlasting joy will be yours. And that, my friends, is yours today in Jesus Christ already. Here's my challenge for you today as we end. If you are in a winter season, realize that God is doing something in you and it is for you and for your good. Romans eight twenty eight. God is working all things together for those who love him, trust him. Do not lose hope or faith because of the season you're going through, even if it leads to your death. Number two, prayerfully, patiently wait upon the Lord because he will meet you in the pain and either he'll bring resolution or he'll carry you through to the end. And number three, I wanna challenge everybody with this. If you're not in a winter season, a message like this kind of goes through one year and out the other and you don't think much of it but people you know are going through a hard season. And just like Heman the Ezraite, 
In Psalm 88, whatever was his problem made him feel isolated and alone. His family, his friends had left him when he needed them the most. Maybe he did it. Maybe he did something tragic that made everybody get away from him. Or maybe everybody pulled away. I remember one person I know going through a brutal season and in the hospital was shocked by how many of their friends never came to visit. Listen, if you're not in a winter, someone you know might be. Today, would you go out of your way to encourage them? If it's not today because it's Father's Day, then you know what? This week. As the Spirit leads you, write them a letter, send them a text message, call them on the phone, make a quick visit, send a gift card. Just say, you know what? I love you and so does God. And he told me to do this for you. You'll be amazed, amazed at how much blessing it is in people's lives. We're gonna go to communion. We're gonna spend some time with Jesus, kind of wrestling with all this. What I wanna do right now is just um, open a prayer. Communion service, go ahead and go. And then I'm gonna stop and hand it to you and you just carry the prayer on into your communion time with God. Father in heaven, we love you. God, winter seasons are never easy. Here we are in the middle of June, almost July, and talking about winter, it feels weird, but some of us in this room know exactly what I'm talking about because they're there or they just came out of it. So God, I just pray right now, Lord, would you encourage our hearts? God, would you um, build up those around us who are in a winter season and it's hard for them? And God, would you help them to see what it is you're doing and to join you in it? God, whether you're pruning them or building them up for the next thing. And God, I pray right now for those of us who aren't in winter and this message may not really fall on us the same way it would have in a winter season. God, I pray that you would reveal to us a name or a situation that we could come alongside to build up and encourage and just be the hands and feet of Jesus in the life, the life of someone else. We love you, Father. We thank you, Father, in Jesus' name. <clears throat>